Hi everyone, welcome to a new episode of Narratives of Purpose. I am your host, Claire Morigande. On this podcast, I bring you inspiring individual stories of ordinary people making extraordinary social impact. My guests today are Dr. Sanduk Ruit and Thomas Boshart. Dr. Ruit is a world-renowned eye surgeon based in Kathmandu, Nepal. He is the founder and director of the Tilganga Institute for Ophthalmology. Dr. Witt has been at the forefront of developing safe, effective, and affordable procedures for cataract surgery, enabling blind people in the poorest countries to see again. He is also the recipient of several awards and recognitions, including the prestigious Ramon Magsaysay Award for Peace and International Understanding. My second guest, Thomas Bossart, is co-owner of Earthly Instrumente. Earthly Instrumenta is a family-run medical device company based in Switzerland, which specializes in eye surgery. Our discussion today is centered around the disparities in access to cataract surgery around the world and how both Dr. Ruit and Thomas successfully combined philanthropy with business in their collaboration. Please take a moment to rate and review the show by subscribing on your preferred podcast platform. But for now, have a listen to what Dr. Ruit and Thomas are passionate about, how they met, and what they have accomplished through their collaboration. Hello, Dr. Ruit. Hello, Thomas. A warm welcome to both of you on the podcast. Thank you. Welcome to Claire. Thank you, Claire. It's really a great pleasure to have you both on the show. And thank you so much for joining me today and taking the time to have this discussion. Now, let me start with a few words of introduction. So Thomas and I met exactly one year ago as we both embarked on our executive MBA journey here in Zurich. And then a few months back in November 2020, Thomas had a TEDx talk, which was really amazing. It was titled Preventing Blindness, Bringing Light to the World. And I have to say this, Thomas, you absolutely hooked me with the very first words that you spoke. You ask the audience to close their eyes and imagine themselves going about their daily lives as a blind person. That was really powerful. And then throughout your talk, you went on to mention how you met Dr. Ruit and how you were really inspired by him because he dedicated his whole life to fight blindness and provide care to the poor and especially to bring Western standard of care to remote areas of the world. And at that time, I thought that, you know, I needed to tell your story somehow and really showcase your collaboration and all the great things that you have both achieved. So here we are. And right now, just to extend the introduction, I would like to give you both the word and maybe we can start with Dr. Ruit first. So can you tell me a bit more about yourself and especially how you got involved with eye surgery. Claire, I'm uh, uh, Dr. Sanduk Ruit, uh, based in Kathmandu. You know, I'm part of uh, an institute where uh, we normally see about a thousand patients a day and uh, had about uh, 30,000 surgeries a year. And uh, part of that is a lot of training to doctors coming from all over the world. And uh, so this is uh, really the institute that I work in. and. Uh, when I was a general doctor, I had an opportunity to 
go to a field trip with one of my seniors in the far western part of Nepal. And uh, in such an instance uh, that I saw five children in the same family having cataract, congenital cataract, and having had surgery. And uh, uh, I just sort of was observing as a general medical practitioner. And as I saw those children the next day, uh, uh, just amazed me that at such a short time, you can make difference in so many people's life. So I started, uh, you know, getting interested very heavily, very, very on eye surgery and uh, and uh, going into that specialty. That's how I got interested. That's a really beautiful story. Thank you. And how about you, Thomas? What is your background and how did you get involved with eye surgery? I was born and raised in the east of Switzerland, pretty basic. So I went to regular school here in Switzerland locally and I did an apprenticeship, the commercial apprenticeship, and then went to university to study business administration and economics, as many people do here in this region. I spent afterwards quite a few long time in the United States, in New York, where I there had for the first time really starting to become a feeling for around for, for the world, for mm-hmm. uh, a diversity, for culture, for different ideas, uh, for the vibe of life and so on, which was pretty much different to the eastern village here in Switzerland, where I came from. Uh, when I was back home at some point, when I started my professional life, uh, my father already worked with our, in our, within our family company, Earthly, which is specialized in, uh, in, in eye care, especially on cataract surgery and retinal uh, mm. surgery on the eye. And he started in the company back in the late 80s. And at that point, I was still a teenager or coming close to the age of a teenager back home. And that was also the first time I had mm. contact with eye surgery because he had at home those magazines, those journals, and you could see those colorful pictures of eyes with people stabbing some instrument into the eyeballs and doing some stuff in there, which reminds you more than on a horror movie than of, of surgery. But that actually was my first contact I had with eye mm-hmm. surgery. And um, then over the time, it, is, it has actually never been planned that uh, I would start uh, in the company of my dad, but it somehow uh, evolved because I showed a great interest uh, in, in, in business. And I thought he's a He's a very good businessman, an interesting businessman and employer. And I thought after university, it would be cool to work a few years for him uh, to start my professional career, what I did. And then later on, my brother joined as well. What finally was not meant to be a family company started to become a family company. And in 2010, uh, we took over uh, the business from my dad, who then retired. Since then, I'm I'm leading uh, the company, our family company, together with my brother, and together with a wonderful group of employees here in Switzerland and uh, serving around the 1.5 million patients all uh, all over the world. That's how I ended up basically in eye surgery. That's really fascinating. So you went from being a teenager who saw these pictures of eyeballs with instruments stuck inside them to leading the family-owned company. That's amazing. Okay, so let's jump into the discussion um, and start with defining cataracts. Just to make sure that everybody understands what cataracts are, perhaps Dr. Ruit, can you tell us how cataract is defined? As your hair grows gray with aging, especially after, uh, I think in the uh, Western world, uh, it's about 70 years, but uh, in this part of the world, 
in middle and low income countries, uh, it's quite usual to find it above 60 also. The eyes start to get a little blurry and the clear lens, uh, which is sitting inside the eye, which helps to focus things, uh, normally is crystal clear. And with the process of A's, this becomes, gradually becomes opaque. And uh, in your part of the world, as it becomes a little bit opaque, you have a difficulty in driving and difficulty in reading. Uh, it's time for you to go for surgery. But in this part of the world, the cataract tends to be uh, fairly advanced by the time we see the patients coming to us uh, uh, you know, it's, it's like, it's difficult to recognize people, it's difficult to walk around, and very often it's totally blind. And uh, right now, presently, if you look at the global situation, uh, you know, there are about 20 million people who are absolutely blind with cataract. And another, I would say, close to 70 million people who needs to have surgery. So I would say that about 100 million people in the world actually needs to have cataract surgery. Yeah, of that 20 million are absolutely blind. And uh, the beauty is that the surgery is so much predictable and so good that uh, uh, it's, it's one of the most cost-effective medical interventions medicine ever knew. Uh, this is uh, what I say because uh, I'm, I love the, you know, I, I love what I do, but it is true. I think it's one of the most impressive cost-effective uh, and, uh, you know, medical interventions ever. I was actually looking at a video report recently mentioning the work that you were doing in Kathmandu and they talked about a specific technique that you had developed. So the surgery lasts only five minutes and does not require any stitches and people would recover almost uh, full sight the next day. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, uh, Claire, you know, uh, there has always been two types of medical intervention in the high income and the low income countries, unfortunately, you know. We often like to call uh, children of the lesser God in this part of the world. Uh, but, you know, I believe that vision is such a thing uh, that uh, it has to be of the same quality for everybody. And uh, as it was in the beginning, it was not possible to do the type of surgery that was done in Zurich or Geneva or New York uh, in this part of the world because it was very expensive it was very complex. So <clears throat> what I did was uh, over the period of almost 10 years, simplified the, uh, the surgery, surgical technique and uh, making sure that uh, it's less costly. And uh, again, uh, it had to be tested and done randomized trial with some of the ones which are done in the best places in America and uh, found that the results were compatible so that's what it is about the low cost, high quality, uh, you know, simple surgical technique that uh, we really helped to develop in Nepal and uh, took it outside to many other countries. So you mentioned that you took it to many other countries. Can you tell me in which part of the world? 
uh, I would say in the, to many countries, just to list some of the countries that we have been uh, is uh, India, China, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, Myanmar, Indonesia, North Korea, Ethiopia, Ghana, Rwanda, Tanzania, all these places, uh, some of our team members have been there or some of doctors from this part of the world have come to Nepal for training. And uh, it's just that this is a simple, low cost and uh, gives equally good results. You know, this has been wonderful, really. It, it is working so good. And sometimes people often call this as a, as a reverse invention, something which was developed in a very poor country like Nepal and now is being used in other countries. That goes to show that innovation comes from everywhere, right? Everywhere, everywhere. You know, human brains are everywhere same. Exactly. So, so Thomas, I'd like to know um, what your company has been doing in this, in this area and specifically for cataract surgery. Well, I might have to, um, to open this up a little bit. I'm not only limited to uh, developing world because actually cataract is an issue all over the world. In, in our region, it's just not seen as a problem because it's a problem solved. As uh, Santa Cruz said, as soon as your eyesight is decreasing a little bit or gets a little bit hazy, you go to the doctor, you get a topical anesthesia and uh, one hour later or two hours later, you go back home. And next day you can go swimming again and you have clear eye and even, even the better vision than before. So it's a completely a problem solved. And it's one of the few surgical interventions where you really feel better afterwards than before because you get back quality of life. And this is, is a little bit forgotten probably in our region because it has become proper standard of care, completely covered by the insurance. It's even a very strong discussion whether it's too costly or not and so on. So it really has become kind of a commodity in our region, unfortunately, uh, which sometimes makes people forget how far developed this procedure A is and B, what it does to our lives. And then, of course, in the developing world, you have a, a completely different situation where it is a huge privilege still for many to get access to surgery, to get their eyesight back, to be able just to move around their life. So the needs in those markets are basically, although this procedure is the same, the needs are much different. In the Western world, it's much more uh, going towards uh, lifestyle medicine, where you have femtolaser coming in, which is supposed to make even more uh, smooth surgery, where you have very special lenses, accommodating lenses, uh, which are implanted that you can get totally rid of your glasses and so on. So it's very far developed in details. In the developing world, in my opinion, it is way more about getting the surgery to the people and help to get this mass of people who have no access to the procedure, get them treatment and helping seeing again. So basically in the developing world, you are much more on an investment market where you basically have capital goods, where you have small machines, which you're trying to bring into the market, which are mobile and, and where you also have to train a lot of doctors uh, with big eye centers and so on and outreach patients that uh, people can get surgery. Whether in the, in the Western world, it's much more towards sterile products, which you sell on a daily basis because everything has to be sterile and is used just once per procedure. Also the equipment which you have on the Western markets, they are um, 
uh, they are in terms of features and complexity, they go uh, probably beyond that, what you put into a machine which is sold in the uh, developing world. But the interesting thing is you do not make any compromises on performance of the equipment. Mm -hmm. So don't mix up features and performance. The performance yeah. of the equipment which we are producing and which we are trying to bring out of the market according to our slogan, make it more simple, more efficient and a better outcome for the patients means that you do not come make compromises on the performance of the equipment. Mm -hmm. Maybe you have less features in terms of settings and stuff like that or usability, but the performance of the equipment at the end of the day and that the patients can be treated however how difficult his eye is, which needs to be operated the doctor can perform a surgery in a way that we really can make uh, make a difference afterwards. That's a very important point. And I couldn't agree more because it also goes back to what you were saying earlier, Dr. Ruit, is that vision has to be the same for everybody and we need to have the same standards everywhere. Now, let's come to your collaboration. And first of all, I'd like to know, how did you both meet? Can you tell me about that? Thomas, please go ahead. Yeah, I can start because yeah. it's a funny thing. Um, <laughs> it's really a funny thing. Um, yeah. uh, Thomas Büchli from uh, Vision yeah. Himalaya yeah. Uh, introduced ourselves. So Thomas Büchli, he, who really needs to be mentioned here as well, who built up Vision Himalaya or former Vision Tibet in the early days, what it was called. Uh, he got funds and when he got funds again, uh, he was buying equipment from us to then donate it to those uh, countries or especially to uh, to Tilganga Eye Hospital where, um, uh, where Dr. Ruit uh, was working and was leading all those projects. And he approached me and he told me that um, Dr. Ruit is uh, so much in love in our equipment and he would love to come to Switzerland and see our company and of course also would like to give further advice and point out the importance of the work they do that we can support them. So yeah, at some point, Dr. Ruit showed up in the Eastern of Switzerland together with Mr. Brickley in the morning, stand in front of our company. And that's our first contact we had. We had. And I would say it immediately clicked between us because he was so full of passion and he was so convincing of everything he sought said he was completely authentic in his thoughts and one thing what amazed me besides giving very good input how we could further develop our products was he had a complete sense how the world works and that charity work can only work successfully if it can be part of a business ecosystem and that was extremely interesting so he would never come to you and ask you, please donate. We have no money and we have only poor people. No, he had always with a tremendous pride and also uh, in a very intelligent way, found a way how you can work with companies in those regions on highly sophisticated products in a total low cost region in a way that participating in that ecosystem can bring jobs in a high a high income country like Switzerland. And that was very interesting. Uh, that was uh, something which went on until today. So first of all, it was how we started to understand the market, the market needs from the developing world, and also how beautiful it is to work with these, uh, uh, these people and how much sense this work gives 
to our company and to our people. And on the other hand, how we were really able to develop good work and good jobs here in Switzerland uh, to fulfill that, that need in a total win-win situation. That's a little bit story from my point of view behind it. And of course, it's meanwhile, it was scalable in so many ways. So Dr. Ruit, now I'm curious to know your version of the story. Uh, Claire, likewise, I would really like to uh, remember very, very fondly, uh, you know, great friends of mine, uh, Thomas Yangchen Butchuli. Uh, and also I would like to remember uh, a Swiss ophthalmologist who have been working for a long time with me called Roman Grimega. Grimega, yes, from St. Gallen. And uh, these are the people I had already been working and using the Oatly machine. And I was fascinated by, because you get so many machines in the market and uh, the, the Oatly, uh, I'll talk to you a little bit about it uh, a bit later, but uh, uh, you know, because of uh, the way I fell in lo love with this little yellow box, I call it, you know, um, since uh, my friends were Thomas, And Roman, I had a desire to go and look into the factory, actually. And uh, so that's how uh, I came to Zurich. And what really fascinated me was multiple stationaries for putting the machines together. There was so much precision in every step. Even the smallest of the screwdrivers and the smallest of the, uh, you know, the chips, uh, it was taken and manufactured with such uh, quality precision. But the other thing that I looked at, that I liked was uh, in his company, uh, all the people were working with great passion. There was some kind of positive vibe inside the company. Uh, I'm, I'm telling you now, because this is something that I found very special, uh, that positive vibe, which is a very healthy thing to see in, uh, any, you know, in a family or in a working station. And I was very impressed. You know, this machine that Thomas's company, Oatly, makes is so good. It is compact and uh, it is robust. I can carry it on the back of a donkey. I can uh, take it on a two-plane uh, engine. I can take it on a four-wheel drive. Uh, I can take it on a ship, on a raft. It has been to the highest places in the world. We did surgery on a 15,000 to 16,000 feet in Tibet. And we have taken it to North Korea. We have taken it to different islands in, uh, in Indonesia. We have taken it to Ethiopia. And it has such a low maintenance. Really, really, it's, it's really fantastic. We did suggest some uh, modifications and uh, uh, which were very timely done. And uh, I hope uh, the uses of the instruments are going to be still very strongly global because it is going to help us further increase the number of surgeries we can do, increase the quality we can do, not only for me, but for thousands of my colleagues around the world. And uh, it's, it's that really value uh, that these machines take. I was also fascinated by the professionalism in the family. And then I thought this is a nice place we can co combine charity with business. And uh, like Thomas already said, uh, kind of a philanthropic you know, work. I'm pretty sure we'll be friends for lifelong. You know? 
and we'll continue our work, uh, you know, and make it stronger and stronger. Well, that absolutely sounds like a very fruitful collaboration made to last, I have to say. Uh, just one point, Dr. Ruit, you talked about this uh, yellow box. Can you explain exactly what that is? The, uh, the small yellow box is what we call as a FACO emulsification machine. And it's one of the most important uh, part of the cataract surgery. And if you don't have a FACO emulsification, you cannot do a Morton cataract surgery, you know. So uh, that uh, definitely, that yellow box is really uh, something. Right now, I'd like to move the discussion on the current global pandemic that we are all facing with COVID-19. And I'd like to know what challenges have you been uh, dealing with up until now? And what is the situation like for you at the moment? Perhaps let's start with uh, you, Dr. Ruit. How is it in Nepal? Uh, Claire, you know, we had a, a kind of a lockdown for about six months and uh, almost a very, very small number of surgeries, except for casualty surgeries, no uh, cataract surgery. And uh, uh, for the last two months, uh, you know, patients have been coming back. Uh, but for the last 15 days now, uh, I, I think our volume is getting much better. Uh, there has been an increment in the backlog of cataract, even that is for six months, you know. So uh, I would consider that these people, some of these people have, uh, you know, unnecessarily been blind for half a year. And uh, we are seeing uh, the surge of that. Uh, more uh, advanced cataracts are coming for uh, examination and for surgery. And uh, likewise, uh, in other parts of Nepal and uh, some of my colleagues in other parts of the world, almost similar situation. But I think luckily uh, things are falling back into normalcy slowly. Over the last 15 days or a month, uh, we're getting you know more close to normal level of uh, patients uh, coming to hospital for treatment now. Still, uh, because of COVID situation, the um, distancing, uh, and everything, our efficiency is less. And uh, we have to follow very strict protocols for examinations. It takes longer hours and less patients can come to see us. And how about you, Thomas? What's the situation like for your company? Well, the ophthalmic industry uh, or ophthalmic market, eye surgery market uh, last year has been uh, hit dramatically, I would say. Um, because uh, there was a long lockdown in, in the Western world going on for close to three months where all the operating theaters were closed because uh, eye care was not life emergency uh, surgery, which I understand. Yeah. And we did not know what's going to happen with COVID and how it's going to th turn out. So I don't blame uh, anybody for this. And uh, that, of course, you, you could see in, in your books, because if there are no surgeries done, then uh, you don't make any turnover. And the same is in the developing world where the investments of many countries just went back and no new machines or less new machines have been purchased. And um, that we could feel, of course. And then what, as Dr. Reed said, what you also see here uh, in our region is that now that surgery is back uh, to normal, kind of, that the put-through is well lower because there are so many more security procedures which needs to be done uh, due to COVID. And then just per day, you can't do 
surgery and so many patients and others. Of course, I understand that some people are also hesitating to go into the OR at this point. That's the current situation now. So I would say we are approximately on 75%, maybe 80% what the market normally would, uh, would give or where it should be. But you have to see that uh, cataract surgery and eye care in general is in the long run, it's a growing market with around market growth, I would say between three to four and a half percent, and depending on the region worldwide. And this is due because the people worldwide are getting older, people are getting better access to medical healthcare worldwide, and also the equipment and training and just the access is getting better, which is a lot, which is allowing worldwide uh, to give better care to the people. So in the long run, I'm very much convinced that the market will come uh, come back. I don't know if it's going to be like this for one year, for two years or six months or whatever. We will see. But in the long run, I'm sure it will be it will picking up. That's really good that you mentioned the long run and the future, because this actually brings me to my next question. Um, I'd like to ask you, how do you see cataract surgery evolving? I mean, you just mentioned right now that you know, people are getting older, are living much longer, so the need is increasing. Are there some areas where you see improvement and innovation coming soon? Uh, Dr. Ruiz, what is your take on that? I think uh, cataract surgery is going to become uh, much more user-friendly and uh, less uh, invasive. And we are already doing cataract surgery without anesthesia now, without uh, injectable anesthesia. Uh, I think there is going to be some improvements in the uh, different types of intraocular lenses that are used. You know, the, the, the machine that uh, Thomas uh, uh, actually manufactures, it may evolve a little bit, uh, you know, better uh, in terms of uh, how, how it cuts the cataract and how fast and how less damaging it cuts. Uh, I would say these are some of the things that can happen in the future. But uh, I must add, I was amazed uh, and I love to see uh, the Bossard family, especially Thomas and the Oatley company, having a very strong commitment for prevention of blindness in the low and middle income countries, unlike uh, many other uh, commercial companies. And uh, this was very special that I, I really fell in uh, with that concept, you know, of combining charity with, uh, you know, business, really. Yeah. So, Thomas, what is your perspective from the manufacturing side? Well, there's always room for improvement. And I see a few drivers. I believe that especially in the, in the high-end surgery, also in the, in the Western world, we will see dramatic improvement in terms of visualizations. So right now you're still working most of the time through microscope, but now the 3D screens are evolving and you have your whole comping in front, uh, front of you. It's called heads-up surgery. I believe that is definitely something which the visualization of the actual procedures is going to. Uh, I believe we will see dramatic shift in old diagnostics thanks to artificial intelligence. So for instance, we already know that these days they have engines uh, which have been recently developed together with Google that when you do retina scan, they immediately knows uh, whether it's a woman or whether it's a, it's a man, whether it, the person has been a smoker, whether it's the left eye or the right eye and stuff like that. And we do not know actually how the, uh, how the AI figured that out. Um, so in terms of diagnostics, I see dramatic shifts in the middle to the long run. 
I believe that the products will become more and more user-friendly. That the young surgeons who are now uh, coming into uh, daily work, okay, they are a different generation than I am, and they are even a different de- generation than Dr. Ruit is. And mm-hmm. they were growing up with the mobile, etc., and they have a different behavior. They have a different lifestyle. So the products, even in medical care, they must uh, evolve in that way. So usability uh, is very important, customer journey and so on. Uh, I believe there is a big, big room for improvement and automatization of certain surgical steps definitely is, is in discussion. So whenever you can speed up the put-through of surgery without compromising quality of the surgery. This is something which is very welcome. And I also believe that there are probably some services in the future which company can offer that the doctor actually gets back more time for the patients. So in terms of uh, digital, you know, patient files and stuff like that, you have to write in the Western world so many things down after the procedure and taking so many notes that there is room for improvement that you actually can give back time to OR staff and the doctor that they have more time uh, on the patient. There I see things as well. And then it's also another side, which is a huge showstopper in terms of innovation uh, in, in eye care and in medtech in general, and this is the whole regulations, which are becoming more and co- more crazy, like the C marking with the medical device regulation, like the SFDA in China or the FDA in the US. It's becoming very, very tough to develop mm-hmm. medical class products because you have to fulfill so many aspects that your products get approved. At smaller innovations, and smaller in product improvements, you often say, no, we are not going to do this. It's not worth the time. So that's a little bit uh, uh, the drawback of the whole situation. Mm-hmm. But I'm very confident and it's an exciting. Now, still looking forward, what would be your advice to younger people who are eager to pursue a career either in the medical device industry, like you, Thomas, or in the field of ophthalmology? Dr. Ruit, you said in the beginning of this conversation that you have a training center, so you are already in contact with younger doctors. What is your advice to them? Hmm. I, I, you know, I am so positive and so passionate about the work that I do. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, we get uh, medical students coming over from different parts of the world for uh, an elective. These are general medical students, you know. And uh, let me tell you that of these medical students, maybe uh, about 100 would have come and visited and worked with us. And after 100, 70 went on to become ophthalmologists. So, uh, I mean, you know, <laughs> it's, a very, it's a very high rate. And uh, I, I would say uh, that this is a branch of medicine where you can encounter uh, the positive aspects of medicine, which has not generally uh, been true in many other branches. And uh, it is such a quickly resulting, and uh, sometimes if the uh, cataract is very dense, the result is so phenomenal. It's almost like a fairy tale sometimes, you know. I'll tell you, I always describe to the students an incident that I uh, went through 
when I operated on a young lady of 27, 28 year old who uh, had given birth to a baby about three years ago. And that lady had been blind for almost 10 years uh, and uh, left in a very corner of a difficult, you know, sequestrated geographical place. And after she had surgery, and uh, you could imagine the lady who was totally blind could see a young, her young three-year-old son that she had nurtured in a womb for nine months she had never seen. And uh, I described this to uh, youngsters and uh, uh, they like this story because it's so powerful really. And every time, uh, you know, I, I vividly remember it, I get moved. Even now I get moved. And uh, you know, what a, uh, what a profession really. That's an absolutely moving story. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, Thomas, how about you? Do you have any words of advice? The medical device industry is so an interesting field. Well, first of all, at the basis, you basically make products uh, who help people in the world mm -hmm. and you can make a living out of it. And that's a wonderful thing. And especially mm -hmm. today where you're talking so much about purpose, there is mm -hmm. so much purpose behind it. And that's just, mm -hmm. that's just cool. And people love that. And then when you are in the med tech industry, especially when you are making a little bit more complex machines. You have so many different aspects of work. I mean, you have electronical parts, you have software engineering, uh, you have mechanical parts, uh, you have testing, you have regulations. Um, then you have all kinds of different new technologies. Okay, You have topics like AI, which is coming in. You have 3D printing, which is starting to evolve in this, uh, this industry. Then you have sterile production, you have packaging, um, you have uh, instruments to connect, you have a titanium, you have a, whatever kind of materials you're using. So it's extremely diverse, okay? And that's fun. And on the other hand, even on the product side, I mean, you have a, when you look at product management, you have a customer journeys, you have design thinking methods, which you're using. And finally, you can sell globally. Um, so it's, you find so many aspects in a huge value chain where you can be a part of. And this is something I believe that people in our place is something which they very much like. They have everything under one roof. And most of the people who start with us, or we have many students doing uh, work for us, like master thesis, uh, or they do an internship or whatsoever. And we always try to give them interesting work where they really can figure out how things work and where we give them the trust to be a part of that. And most of them are just fascinated that they were able to contribute something and try something out and be part of that ecosystem where so many different things are happening. So my advice, if you want to go to the medical industry, find a company where you can do an interesting internship to have a look at it or apply for a master thesis or whatsoever. And uh, that's probably the best. That's really great advice from both of you. Thanks a lot. Before I let you go, we are now at the last part of our show. And I would like to take the time to get a sneak preview into what you are both reading and what music you're listening to. So are you ready for my quick three questions? Yes. All right. So let me start with you, Dr. Ruit. First question, what book are you reading right now? Or what music are you listening to constantly these days? I, I like to read a lot of autobiographies. And uh, the book that I'm reading at present is uh, called Mao's Last Dancer. 
by uh, Lee Kun Sin. This is about a, a boy who was, you know, sort of uh, found during the Cultural Revolution and uh, from a very small village into a dancing school, who later on became one of the best dancers of the male dancers of the world in Houston Ballet, you know. And sometimes uh, I tend to uh, imagine similarly because I'm also from a very, very poor part of the world and my village is in the poorer place. So it's the struggle that, uh, uh, you know, Lee goes through. Uh, it's very interesting. And most of the music that I listen to is Nepali music. May not be very interesting to you. I love Nepali music, particularly a single called Narayan Gopal. All love songs. That's great. It's the first time that uh, I have Nepali music referenced on the podcast. So I will make sure to search for this singer online. And now the same question for you, Thomas. Um, what book are you reading right now or what music are you listening to? Um, well, I have to say that um, I'm not reading books these days. I'm um, listening to them. <laughs> so, and the book I'm currently uh, reading is uh, The Four uh, of uh, Scott Galloway. And it's about the hidden DNA of uh, Amazon, Apple, uh, Facebook, and Google. So it's quite an interesting Wow. Quite an interesting book to hear about. Yeah, very interesting book, actually. Second question. Now I will start with you, Thomas. Um, is there an artist or a song, perhaps even a book, that has particularly resonated with you at a specific time in your life? Uh, well, I, ha I actually have a few. But if I have to pick when it's coming about the musician or an artist, it definitely would be Julian Cannibal Adderley which in my uh, view is the most underestimated alto and later sopran saxophone player in jazz music we have ever seen. I love his sound all the way through, uh, his appearances, his performances, his compositions, his warm, truly soulful uh, sound is something I can always listen to. And if I had to pick a song, it probably would be... Um, Around uh, midnight, composed by a uh, Thelonious monk, which I believe is the most mm. beautiful ballad ever written. Another same question to you, Dr. Ruiz: Is there a specific book that has been special for you throughout your life? Uh, one book that I can, you know, I've read twice and uh, uh, really has vibrated inside me. And if I go back, and I can uh, always uh, talk about it. It's uh, uh, Nelson Mandela's autobiography on Long Walk to Freedom. And it's such a beautiful book, you know. I, I don't see any other book. The third and final question. What is your all-time favorite book that you absolutely recommend? I believe, Dr. Ruit, this is the one you just mentioned, right? Yes, um, yes. I, I would recommend uh, The Long Walk to Freedom, uh, the autobiography of Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And what about you, Thomas? What is your all-time favorite album? If I have to choose a specific album which I can't listen to enough uh, or I can, could, could listen over and over again, it would be um, Concert by the Sea uh, from, from Errol Garner, recording in 1956, something like that. Wonderful jazz album. So happy and soulful music, full of energy. Yeah. So wow. you can see I'm a big jazz fan. Yes, I can absolutely see that. 
So Dr. Ruit, Thomas, thank you so much for this wonderful conversation. Thank you for sharing your experience with me and talking about your work. It's been really great having you on the show. Thank you. That was episode 7, a conversation with Dr. Sandra Ruit and Thomas Boshard. Both Dr. Ruit and Thomas are passionate, committed and dedicated people I deeply admire. You will find a wealth of resources online presenting Dr. Ruiz's accomplishments, as well as media coverage, including documentaries, reports, articles, and so on. In case you wish to learn more in a book, his biography, titled The Barefoot Surgeon and authored by Ali Gripper, is available in online bookstores. I also recommend you watch Thomas's TEDx talk, titled Preventing Blindness, Bringing Light to the World. All these links and references, in addition to those from our conversation, are listed on the podcast page. Simply type in your browser narratives-of-purpose.podcastpage.io and click on this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening to this new episode. I really appreciate you taking the time. Make sure you follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram or Twitter to get timely updates. Until the next episode, take care of yourselves, stay well, and stay inspired.